Welcome to Cinema Talk at the Wisconsin Film Festival. I'm Mike King, senior programmer for the festival, and our guests on this episode are the filmmakers Rintu Thomas and Sushmit Ghosh, whose new documentary, Writing with Fire, is screening in our 2021 festival. Hailed as the most inspiring journalism movie, maybe ever, by the Washington Post, this rousing documentary spotlights the only Indian newspaper run entirely by women. A real-world David and Goliath story of women standing up to speak truth to power, Writing with Fire won both an Audience Award and a Special Jury Award at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. Co-directors Rintu Thomas and Sushmit Ghosh are joined in this conversation by Darshana Mini, Assistant Professor in Communication Arts here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Here's their conversation. Thank you so, so much, Shmit and Rindu, for joining us. Uh, my name is Darshana Mini, and I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Communication Arts, UW-Madison. It's my pleasure to welcome the directors of the documentary that you have just watched, Writing with Fire, Rintu and Shishmit. Uh, so I have a set of questions that I would like to hear more about, especially regarding the production of the film, your own experience working uh, with this group in India and you know the, the larger landscape of independent documentary movement in india so to start um, i would like to uh, you know start this conversation with your film journey and how you came to this project and what drew both of you to this project especially as a debut film uh, what were the challenges that you both faced while you were working on this project Thanks so much, Darshana, and uh, very um, keen to be actually participating at Wisconsin Festival like this because we've like the film took birth, uh, so to speak, in Jan this year at Sundance, and we've like sat here literally at the same place, uh, but it has had the good fortune to travel and and be in be in the personal spaces and hearts and minds of uh, audiences um, and, and audiences that are not Indian for a quintessentially Indian story and the kind of love that we're getting is so, so rewarding. So very happy that the film is playing and very happy that we're talking to you, someone who intimately understands the cultural context that uh, uh, the story is actually a part of. Um, Sushmit and I studied together. We we did our master's in, in uh, film together and we worked on our um, thesis film, which is uh, a story about a photographer who is HIV positive um, and uh, uh, gay and uses the, the, the landscape of his nude body to really question the gaze of uh, uh, what a diseased man should look like, you know, what is the stereotype around uh, someone uh, who makes the life choices that he does. And, and that film became, uh, it's called Flying Inside My Body. It traveled to festivals across the world, but more importantly opened uh, up many, many conversations in, in our circles, in festivals in India, and is now a part of uh, curriculum in universities across the world. And with that experience, A, we figured that we were friends, but we could also work together. So that was great. And, and also that this whole idea of people in, especially in, in, in India, like, you know, there is, there is this um, lack of uh, excitement around um, documentaries. When you say, oh, let's watch a doc, it's just like, oh, it's going to be some, you know, um, something that's going to draw your moral commitment. So how do we make nonfiction exciting, accessible, entertaining even? Uh, and, and, and eventually like engaging that stirs people to some kind of action in thought uh, or, or in actual tangible action. So that's how we, we actually uh, formed Black Ticket Films in 2009, which is a film production uh, agency focusing a lot on nonfiction. And we've done a host of films which have like really enriched our experience. And we were waiting for the right story to come along that we could spend more time with for a feature. And we saw a photo story online on Khabal um, area. Uh, uh, was surprised that we didn't know anything about them. They had been around for 14 long years in uh, Uttar Pradesh when we met them in 2015. And they were at this very interesting cusp from print to digital. That felt like the right moment to sort of like dig, uh, uh, you know, just, just, just the right entry into a story. And then we thought it will take two years, three years max, but it took us like five uh, uh, and here we are. 
Yeah, thank you so much. It's really good to know about, you know, your own personal journey and how you got to the subject matter. So the film takes the viewers to a moment when uh, Khabar Lahiri is trying to launch their digital presence. But the film uh, did not give us a sense of the history. And that's where I'm curious to know a little bit about how they emerged as a women-run grassroots level organization. Was it part of any development project that they were they were kind of boosted uh, into either in terms of the women empowerment aspect, which you see many NGOs and state government uh, initiated projects, or is this something that came up organically? Um, it would be great for our listeners to know a bit more about the founding of Kabul Lehri and, and how that sparked of your interest in the project. You've covered a little bit of that ground in the earlier question, but if you have anything more to add, that'll be great. Um, so they started off really as a social experiment in 2002 when an NGO um, came in and decided to do a six-month project with uh, semi-literate women in, um, in, in Uttar Pradesh. Um, and the idea was, what would a newsletter designed by women who live in those parts look like? Because um, most, uh, most often what happens is that stories of marginalized communities are never a part of the mainstream. And especially when you when you look at those stories through the lens of gender, women are almost often never uh, a part of the mainstream. So, so it was an experiment. And for six months, what happened was that these women essentially designed a newsletter where they were collecting stories from the community, um, writing these stories down, editing these stories down, printing them, and then distributing them. And after six months, of course, the NGO sort of you know, was shutting the project down, but the women had tasted blood, they wanted to continue. And so what happened was that a couple of folks from uh, the original organization decided to sort of come together uh, with these women. And they that is how Khabar Leheria was founded. Um, and formally, they registered themselves as a newspaper. And for 14 years, the model was, again, they sort of like, it was a more expansive version of the newsletter where they trained as professional journalists and then they were reporting from the field as professional journalists, collecting their stories, coming back, editorializing it. It would go into print and then the women would themselves distribute um, the newspaper uh, within the community. And, and, and I think after 14 years, and of course with the advent of digital, they realized that you know they had a monthly reach of 5,000 newspapers. Uh, and even if you extrapolate the data, at most maybe four people need read one newspaper, so that's twenty thousand at most. And 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 they started having this conversation about the potential of digital, which is we were really lucky because this is exactly the time where we touched base with them, and 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 they were like, you know what, we are having a meeting in Uttar Pradesh, and why don't you come down and sort of like you know. Let the team meet you and you can meet them as well. And so one of the earliest scenes in the film where Mira is actually pitching this shift from print to digital to a team that's nervous, excited, but very ginger about this shift was actually our first day of shooting. So that's what happened. Yeah, that's really exciting because I think that that's one of those sequences which stood out, at least to me, because it's also showing the kind of nervousness with digital technology in general, especially for women who have not used touch phone or, you know, new media technology in general. So uh, just to go back a little into the production process, um, from the closing credits of the film, we get a sense of the programs that have supported the project. Suntan's finished film production, IDFA, Bertha, Fan, Gucci, Tribeca, among others. And it was, it was only Indian film in the Sundance World Cinema Documentary Festival where it won the audience award. So can you tell us a bit more about your journey uh, with the film and the external support that has received? Because being part of these programs also mean that you have changed your project a little bit in terms of the perspective and you know how that has helped you in the process. That's an interesting question. We actually, the first time we pitched the film was in a, this forum called Dockage Kolkata. And um, this was early 2017. And the response we got from there was phenomenal. Uh, and weirdly, I mean, the last time we ended up pitching the film was in 2019. And, you know, a friend of ours was sitting in the audience in Dockage, Kolkata, and he basically, in his excitement, ended up recording the entire pitch in the Q&A. And funnily enough, the pitch that we made there Three years later, 
more or less remained the same. Like we never ended up changing our um, presentation or uh, our story fundamentally because we were very clear about what the story had to be. And we didn't have a sense of where it was going to go. And, you know, really the nuts and bolts of filmmaking in terms of what character is going to have what arc. But philosophically, as artists, we knew what story we wanted to tell. And, and I think what happened was over the course of three to four years of presenting the film in these different forums, I think people sort of got a sense of what our approach to the story was going to be. And in a sense, I would say we were lucky enough that they really believed in that. And we were able to sort of build an allyship of, you know, uh, support across both sides of the Atlantic in, in North America, as well as Europe, uh, which, which many people in the industry tell us is, is a bit rare because you find support predominantly on either side. And I think that essentially told us about the universality of the story itself, that while it's a quintessential Indian story, the values that it was resonating was universal. So, you know, we presented at Dockage Kolkata. From there, we had an opportunity in 2017 to go to the Sheffield Meat Market, which is this extremely competitive um, uh, space where you have 50 projects from across the world. And it's sort of like speed date, dating with, you know, commissioning editors for 15 minutes where you're sitting and presenting the film and, you know, uh, in a more intimate sort of like a setting, but you just have 15 minutes to talk to each other. And then later that year, we had an opportunity to be invited to the IDFA forum for the central pitch, which was super intimidating because we had about 40, 45 commissioning editors sitting around this table in a hall that had about 200 decision makers sitting in the darkness around you. And the spotlights are on you and you have seven minutes to make a pitch. And then you're asked all of these questions. But again, like, I mean, in a great sh sort of like show of strength, uh, we had Marke uh, de Koning, who was then the commissioning editor of uh, Icon, which is a, a very well-respected uh, Dutch broadcaster who came on early with the project, who was pitching alongside us. And on the other side, we had, of course, the amazing Tabitha Jackson from Sundance. And, you know, so it was the four of us presenting the project. And, you know, after we finished the pitch, like, the resounding response that we got from the hall where everybody stood up and was clapping and whistling. And it just, you know, it told us that this is a film that is going to, if we were able to deliver on the promise, was going to have sort of an appeal with larger audiences. And so, so from there, like, I mean, we continue to present the film at different forums and, you know, constantly building sort of like partners and allies, not only for the project, but also for Cover Leheria. So that's broadly been the journey of the story. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. I'm sure that our listeners will also be curious to know about these different programs and how that has really been instrumental in this uh, you know, documentary being made. So uh, the next question I have is regarding mobile phones, because mobile phones play a crucial role in the documentary. We see the women trying to learn the basics of touch phone capabilities, taking photographs, shooting videos. At the same time, we also see uh, Khabar Lahiriya journalists being recorded by others while they are conducting their interviews. And uh, was this kind of surveillance via mobile phone something that Khabar Lahiriya journalists were concerned about? Because we see the, the current moment, current political moment in India when um, face recognition apps are being used to surveil protesters, uh, both with the farmers protest and with the CA protest. So there is a very changed uh, climate that we are looking at in terms of the technological capabilities and how you know, the establishment is making use of it. So it's just curious to know about their transition from print to digital and the anxieties with technology in general. When we started filming with them in the very first year, something interesting happened. They, they also be, were beginning to speak in our language of shots and uh, storyboards and scripts. So they were actually interacting with with what it means to be in front of the camera and behind the camera as, as we were filming them. So there was a very interesting dynamic between us as filmmakers and them as characters. And I think that gave them, a, it was a more, um, it, 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 is, it is inherently uh, an unequal relationship, but it, it helped us actually have conversations that usually, you know, don't happen right in the beginning. So that was quite, uh, I would say the, the initial understanding of what digital can and 
can't do what editing can and can't do i i remember this one time when we were filming with um chamkali and uh, you know she's generally not someone who's out there and you know she she keeps to herself and she's doing a story on how uh, interestingly digital technology uh, necessitates that in the uh, um uh, pds system which is the public distribution yes system. the food pub, the food distribution uh, 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 subsidized food distribution system uh, you know is a very manual system a very analog kind of system but they had digitized it now they digitized it but the actual reception of internet in in the village was non existent which meant that people would come in every day from walking from 100 uh, miles and but but the because the internet is not working you can't get your 2 kgs of rice and she, so she was reporting on the story and as she was doing it this this person from the crowd started filming her and then like at first like you know she wasn't really sure of what to do with it and then she stops recording and says what are you doing and he's like i'm recording you and she said for what and he is like but if you can record i can record too and she, and she says very interesting she said this is my job here's my press card i have the professional right because i'm doing a story what you're doing right now is invading my privacy there's a difference and you have to stop doing that and that's And, and that was so. There were so many such amazing yeah, moments. Yeah, broke my heart that that scene went out. Yeah, yeah. So, when we pulled yeah. it out, we were because that is so important to the conversation to confront and understand and call out surveillance, um, and especially because you're women in spaces that are not uh, that are designed to keep you out. Uh, but I think within the organization that these are very active conversations. Um, they have these monthly, uh, weekly meetings where. Uh, Uh, people discuss experiences and then there's constant mentoring happening so um that that's i think an occupation occupational hazard you can't wish it away so what they do is they use it in their favor so the fact is that now people know who they are their faces are recognizable people know who a sunita is and who meera is what shows they do so it's not that easy to now you know just go and start filming them and if they do if if men they they will be called out Yeah that's really interesting to know also the meta filmic quality that you were referring to in terms of shots yeah. and I'm thinking of that kavita show sequence when you know meera is actually helping that whole process and also understanding what it looks to be on the other side when you when you have a camera everything changes so that was interesting to see so this leads me to my next question about the digital medium that um, khabar lehria uses both in terms of shooting and the post production work and disseminating their stories on youtube and whatsapp so i know that whatsapp has much more currency in south asia especially in india as opposed to twitter so you can tell us a little bit about whatsapp uh, and how whatsapp is used for uh, circulation of stories especially with khabar lehria using it as a, a medium of dissemination and was there any external support that they received in terms of putting these resources together or training sessions because the the one sequence that you mentioned that you began your journey with is showing the transition but i was just curious to know more about the external support uh, both in terms of you know mobile phone as a technology as well as how to navigate this in a very vernacular idiom because um, you know people who do not know english will also have trouble in using this idea of transcription or what what these symbols signify so this is curious to know about the mentoring process that you referred earlier to which is also equally important about women mentoring and providing a space where you can see a gradual progress uh, it's not like you know tangible kind of progress that you need to happen in a matter of days or um, months but it's also about your own you know confidence and how you consider your professional capabilities as a journalist so if you can talk a little bit more about it i think it ties into uh, most importantly the reason why khabarlaria exists which is to um, to to specifically train and induct uh, induct and train um, women from marginalized communities women dalit women muslim women women from adivasi communities who are absolutely invisible 
and that is their core purpose to visibilize and then to say that you know this is our journey to towards empowerment <laughs> you know never going to maybe reach there but it this is these are the negotiations that we are going to make so when when that kind of institution makes a shift to digital the the basic i think language of representation language of what we are doing and why we are doing remained the same and which was the big concern that everybody had you know now are we going to go into the whole breaking news culture well, how is it going to dif- how are we different from others if we are going to just uh, do what everybody else is doing and there were several meetings that we were also part of uh, initial strategy meetings where uh, constantly you know this was like a tug of war and and where people where pe- people like meera saying that our feminist lens is never going to be compromised our independence is never going to be compromised so when it's these these kind of media makers you know digital in their in their hands was it was a new kind of uh, a non violent weapon really they just completely made it their own and 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 also tied to this is the interesting thing that uh, till now uh, or maybe till 5 years back who was telling whose stories really who had access to these technologies it was a certain class certain caste of people who had the the means to actually have the technology to tell these stories now with the advent of digital that has to a great extent become uh, democratized where uh, you now have on tiktok people making these micro stories micro fiction which is them looking at themselves and representing themselves in a way that they want to be right and that has been such an important cultural uh, shift so in many ways i think um, the, uh, the 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 mentoring at kl is really about um, what is our editorial eye going to be if it's a broken road and everybody else is rushing like if it's an accident on a broken road for instance everybody else is going to rush and uh, make it into a breaking news story but what we are going to do is investigate and interrogate why that road was broken in the first place who is responsible for the ambulances not reaching pregnant women and you know deliveries happening at home and children being lost so that's the lens so i think with digital they they've been able to keep their core philosophy principles intact yet flirted with like this new medium with absolute like panache yeah thank you so much because i really like the way you mentioned the success and failure because that's the strand i thought was interesting in the film when mm-hmm. um, a venture that was bound to fail was made to succeed subsequently so what does it mean to even narrativeize the story of kabalaria and i also like the way in which you uh, mentioned this you know urge to also enter into this you know breaking news format but also you know take a step back and say that there is a kind of editorial kind of lens you need to uh, put into looking at stories i i like that session with um, um, i think you know mira was uh, to- talking to uh, i forgot to whom but you know just telling her angle the piece about the angle yeah, the piece about the angle i thought that was fascinating you know in terms of explaining what 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 does it mean if you are looking at a story if you want to report on a story you're not going to give them a pr right you're just you need to make it nuanced and complicated so i really like the way in which that conversation happened uh, without coming across as you know judgmental but at the same time putting your point across so this leads me to the the question about the impact because that's something which uh was mentioned a couple of times in the documentary the language of impact used by the journalist in terms of having a tangible kind of response from the authorities who were forced to uh take action and um on the one hand it points us towards the impact of the stories in terms of these actions and at the same time i thought that there is this reliance on privately owned corporate platforms like facebook that also embeds itself within this economy of likes and shares something that has come to shape the influencer industry and one sequence i have in mind is meera doing this teaching session on how to transcribe english into hindi and which alphabets in the touchpad can be used as shortcuts so i was wondering how this global language of impact and influence seeps into this local context of kabalagare because there is also local journalist neighborhood groups and the idea of local journalism is a strand which kabalagare has kind of foregrounding so where does this where does this language of global impact uh you know comes into the conversation yeah i mean it, it's it's such a sort of like 
cultural conversation now. I mean, with films like The Great Hack or Social Dilemma, where you're looking at big data companies and surveillance and, you know, this whole uh, criticism, uh, which is absolutely justified. And, and for us, what we found interesting was that you had the journalists at Khabar Leheria come in and completely flip that conversation on its head because they are saying that we are using these same tools to actually, in their own ways, open up cultural, social, economic conversations around, you know, uh, ideas of not only journalism, but also representation. Like, who gets to tell whose story? I wonder if they had not shifted to digital, if they would have had the kind of presence and popularity you know, that they, that they actually enjoy right now. If they had, over the last five years, continued with print, they would have been, you know, uh, an institution that people in the region or in their villages are aware of. But now they've essentially become, a, uh, become an organization that, are, it, it, in a sense, is sort of like climbing up the ranks, so to speak. So, for instance, you know, that scene where Mira trains them in understanding what the English alphabet looks like for us is really symbolic because right now they're actually in conversation with uh, NYU where they're looking to develop modules around uh, journalism and how do you sort of like, you know, um, uh, uh, create citizen journalists and Kabul Heria is going to sort of like design like a series of uh, uh, trainings. And, you know, uh, that conversation, I wonder if that would have been possible you know, so for, for, for personally, for me, I, I, I feel that, you know, in the film, you have Satyam, who's walking with a sword. Uh, for Mira and her team, their mythical weapon, so to speak, is the mobile phone. It's a cheap Chinese mobile phone with which they have actually redefined who has access to whose stories and who gets to tell them in what way. And, you know, they also very soon discovered... The, the witchcraft that editing is, how you can actually change meaning just by changing shots and, and, and axis and like frames and, and voiceovers and how reality can be completely subverted. So I think they sort of like took to it like all guns blazing and, and really rode this wave. And like a little trivia, a little anecdote, like the other day we were on this sort of like panel um, this was with, it was a closed door conversation with, you know, students at, at, at Columbia's uh, journalism school. So we were just talking to Mira before the call, before we were going into the Zoom conversation. And I was just like, Mira, you know, what we'll do is when, when they ask questions in English or when they're speaking to us in English, I'll sort of like uh, translate that for you in Hindi. But it might just break the flow, but we'll do that. And she's like, no, no, Sushma, there is like a chat function where you can reach out to me privately. So all you need to do is just type and translate it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, yeah. I mean, I've been using Zoom for years, but I didn't even think about it. So they're really sort of riding this wave and like constantly innovating uh, their model of sort of like news delivery. And it's fascinating to see that. And I think that there's such great sort of like... Um, they're sort of like, um, how do I put it? They're sort of like poster women for the true power or the power for good that the internet also has, you know? They took something that was, in a sense, I mean, it's like fire, right? You can use it to burn someone's house down or cook food. And, you know, there is a certain ambivalence also with, with, with this medium. It's how you use it that gives it that tactile power of good or bad. And for us, they represent like the good that the digital force has inherently in it. Okay, thank you so much because I was thinking about the sequence where I think Sunita and a few other journalists, they are uh, taking some shots of a politician after an interview and then explaining to the politician, you know, how these shots might be put together. So that was like very interesting, explaining to them that this shot could actually go here. You cannot show you, uh, you know, talking. It's very monotonous. So we need to have a shot. You just woman-splained him. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and also the tone of the conversation changed. He was confronting them for, you know, taking those, you know, shots. And he was like, we're using it for a good purpose, if you want to know what that is. 
Uh, okay, so it leads me to my next question about the additional responsibility that this documentary puts on you as filmmakers to frame these women not as uh, victims with no agency in a patriarchal system. And I think a documentary does an exemplary uh, job in doing that. And can you reflect a little bit uh, about how you arrived at this balanced approach that maps the professional and personal lives without sentimentalizing them? Because I know that it's also about understanding one's own privilege, positionality, and this idea of self-reflexivity. So if you have any thoughts on that. That's a great question. Um, I think it's a representation is, is one of the most active conversations that we both have in the uh, lifespan of any film that we make and also with the, our extended crew. Um, I think as, as filmmakers, the job demands that by its very nature, you're entering lives that are not yours, realities that are not yours, um, experiences that you can never have. Uh, and yet occupying that space to sort of tell that story. So there's always, um, I think we, there is an acknowledgement from our end of the privilege that we sort of uh, bring uh, and, and, and with our entire beings. And the question for us is that, yes, there is um, in great difference in the privileged caste class between us and the characters who totally inspire us. Um, but what are we doing with that privilege? Um, and and can, can we be then allies of people who are invested in the mechanisms of change? Change that we want so to see so badly, but may and may be not entirely invested in in the everyday mechanics of it, you know. And that's informed our. It's infuriating. It is, you know. It is so frustrating. Uh, it, you want to rage, but then where does that rage take you? What is the end end result of that? You you just burn and and so our entire body of work so far has been about aligning ourselves with all these amazing outliers people who are outside these systems uh, systems designed to to uh, uh, oppress at the very heart of them and yet you know from that outlier position you know chipping away uh, at past structures and creating a new narrative and a language for themselves these are uh, women who are doing phenomenal work in in the space of climate change uh, communities that have shown great resilience and different ways of you know food security so the, there's a whole gamut of stories but the lens and the approach has always uh, been that so we are naturally i would say brought that work ethic uh, into this story. Um, there were many conversations in the beginning about, you know, what is this film going to be? Why do you want to make a film about us? And we said, we don't know what the film is going to be about, but we definitely know it's not a superwoman is saving the world uh, narrative. And it's also not a victim narrative because we don't see you like that. We are interested in telling stories about people who are real, who have flaws who are bosses and colleagues and running an institution and, and, and are considered imperfect by the society that they live in. And it is okay. Like a tuition teacher will tell you that your kid is not going to perform if you don't pay attention and you're okay with it. You're saying, fine, but that's why I hired you. So that's the person that I'm interested in knowing more. And, and therefore, it's naturally my camera is gravitating towards that life force in her. Um, so while it's a very conscious conversation between us, it's not something that we are dealing with, you know, or have to consciously like negotiate. So the way we pick our crew is also like that for this film, the crew is the three of us, Sushmit, me and Karana, co-cinematographer. Again, someone who's worked a lot with women, um, with communities across uh, uh, rural India and, and get, brings a lot of, you know, just friendship into a relationship. So I would say right from the first meeting that we had with Kale till the, the final, the day we did our picture lock, representation has been very critical to our thought process. Yeah, but also this whole idea of like, I was just bored of watching all of these films and television serials about like, you know, marginalized communities or, you know, even women from our own sort of like, you know, class structures represented in such a poor fashion. And it's just those that continue to get churned on and on. And I was just like, don't people get bored of this? Because it's dull. And 
I want to see like a person on screen who I can sort of like, you know, relate to. And, and, and interestingly, you know, through the course of making this one, there was this very early on, Meera was invited to this TV studio in Delhi and where they were sort of profiling her because of the exceptional sort of journalism that she does. And we were shooting her and it was fantastic. Uh, massive lights, audience and all of that. And then she walked out and we were in the car and, and, and we were like, how, how did you feel about it? Because this was your first time being profiled and you were on TV. And she was like, it was so boring because the questions were the same. And we were like, yeah, right? Yeah. Imagine like, you know, a Dalit woman actually doing this because all the questions were a celebration of like my life. Whereas I'm just like, let's talk about the politics of the body of my work. You know, why don't we, because would you actually do the same thing with Barkhada? No, you would actually ask her about journalism. You would actually ask her about politics and culture and all of that. But you were actually putting me on a pedestal and celebrating me. And I just find that to be, it's another way of othering, right? And and we were just like, yeah, this is, this is so boring. And, and I think, I think the way we also sort of like physically approach storytelling is that the cameras never go in first. We always sort of go in as people and allowing sort of our protagonists and their families to ask us questions as we are asking them questions so that they get to know who we are, what I like, don't like, the fact that we are married and have the same kind of conversations and fights that Meera and her husband also have. I think those are the things we really actually bonded on in the beginning that, you know, I and Meera's husband would actually talk about our wives <laughs> and the wives would talk about the husbands and, you know, conversations about food, all of that. And it's when the friendship developed that it, it just becomes so much more sort of, you know, the process becomes so much more enjoyable and organic and original. Like, cause then you can actually shoot a slice of life. It doesn't look sort of like staged because that is what's happening in front of you because they forget about the camera and they forget about you. You're just there. You're a friend and you're just filming and you, you have that, you know, access and they trust you with it. So, you know, that's essentially what the process is. So. Yeah, thank you so you much for giving us. Our, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. If like, you want us to keep our answers short, please tell us. Your questions are great, though. So, <laughs> this is <laughs> awesome. I really love your responses because it gives us an insight into the production process. What does trust mean? Like, you know, not to make it uh, come across like stage sequences, but emerge as spontaneous. And, and that's what uh, comes across very strongly in the documentary. There's an organic quality to the way, you know, responses are, you know, coming across. And I really like those domestic sequences. <laughs> this is really amazing. So there is an active anti-caste movement emerging in India at this point of time with leaders like Chandrasekhar Asad and others who are trying to be in the forefront to mobilize Dalit, Bahujan, Adivasi community as political stakeholders. So I'm curious to know if Khabar Lehariya is part of this conversation, specifically uh, the sequence I have in mind is the one which involves Meera when she talks about the fact that caste sticks to you wherever you go. And that's the identity I carry with me. Um, no matter who I am, it's always defined by my caste identity. So what were your observations while you were shooting this? Because, you know, I think you tangentially covered this in the earlier response about how they were like, profiling her through a particular lens, which made her feel uncomfortable. That's not how, what she is or the work, larger body of work that she has um, done for Khabar Lehariya. So I was just trying to think a little bit more about the intersectional perspective, as well as um, the anti-caste movement, because one would uh, think about Khabar Lehriya and their conversations and engagement to be also part of this larger anti-caste mobilization happening in India. So uh, is that something that you saw in your five years working with them? I think the it's such a deep, vast and relevant question. Um, the the anti-caste movement, especially in the political uh, spectrum, has has been around for for decades now, uh, and, and, and it predates Ambedkar. So th that has, I, I think, been around and alive uh, uh, for a while. What has changed is the language in its, uh, the, the, the language in which it, it is, for the lack of a better word, packaged. Uh, because it's, 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 now uh, the 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 anti caste movement the activists are are bringing the conversation into uh, the mainstream so to speak in a way that can be understood um, and caught on by the larger mainstream population there is um, there is a so there is a great that is also why it is 
now a more active conversation and and that's my personal opinion honestly it is not just in in the academic circles or in urban think tanks it is a rural conversation as it is a digital conversation as it is a tiktok conversation as it is uh, you know whatsapp videos so it's 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 a it feels like it's it's now arrived because it's picked up momentum thanks to the the multifaceted ways in which now we can build movements and mobilize thoughts and and uh, attempt to change the way people uh, frame these conversations and khabar lehriya i feel their work feeds into this larger movement very organically very naturally the very fact that they uh, you know caste is also a occupational uh hierarchy and the very fact that they have created an organization bottoms up where they have rejected that idea of what dalit women uh, should be designated to do they have rejected that they have dismantled that and they have created an alternative model uh and that creation of possibilities another possibility is 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 a great uh entry point into their own style of of being a part of the conversation uh and i think all of it matters um they have a specific um mandate internally on uh reporting on caste oppression on looking at um uh, people being disconnected from their rights as not just uh, a class issue but also uh, a caste issue and to not never conflate the two also never allow issue. and and a gender issue so they're working at many intersectional levels and their contribution to this movement is in in that sort of like a multifaceted way and and now we have the the antikas movements also very nicely i think smartly feeding into the larger uh, conversations right there is a dalit lives matter movement which is not led just by artists and urban and intellectuals but also um you know organizations like kavaleria and um, their reporters in rural up so it's it's a it's a better time to be in honestly it's a more hopeful time to be in i mean i think the fact the very fact that an institution like khabar lehriya exists and is thriving is a statement in itself you know so yeah thank you so much so uh, this um makes me actually go back to the production black ticket films that produce this film it's something that you both are heading so can you talk a little bit about the scene of independent documentary production in india and the strategies that filmmakers work through to get their films to a global audience you covered it a little bit in the initial phase of today's podcast but uh, i was also thinking about the ott platforms and the proliferation of um, you know different indigenous platforms even focusing on art cinema documentary in india and there is an interest right now in commissioning content from different national film industries and documentary also forms a significant aspect of this new commissioning so um in your experience uh, with the film uh, was there an interest from the ott platforms is that a platform that you're thinking of for uh, the global release because i know that um, the indian release is yet to happen so uh, if you can tell us a little bit about your plans for the film to be released in india and any ott interest in the film so far I got like this is like this whole debate around the OTTs in India is sort of like we could have another entire session on it in terms of what they're commissioning, who they're commissioning it to, and like the kind of stories that are being sort of like you know put there. But <clears throat> I think um, I'll, I'll I'll sort of take your first question first. So in terms of the independent documentary scene in India, it's thriving. Uh, I think it has never been so robust. Ironically, there are no formal systems of support. whether state or private for non fiction uh there are enough for sort of like you know hindi and and regional cinema but none for documentaries and so uh, any filmmaker who's looking at investing time energy resources uh in a feature length project typically would have to sort of look outside the country and that's where you have all of these forums and um funds and 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 institutions that are supporting non fiction and also i think what's happened in the past few years is this movement to decolonize the 
documentary industry, so to speak, globally. Who gets to tell whose stories is such an important part of that conversation. What's in our experience, what's happened is that over the past few years, we've had all of these OTTs reach out to us saying, you know, we would love for you to come on board and do this film. And we're like, yeah, but we've existed for 12 years. I mean, what's changed now? No, no, because we want to have an Indian tell an Indian story. And, and essentially what's happened is that, like, you know, the mechanics of pressure have been applied. And, and I think that, again, I mean, this conversation has exploded on the internet. So again, it's, it is on Facebook, it is on Twitter, where you have people having these raging debates about, the kind of work that the OTTs are commissioning and, and being called out uh, for for what's happening and and writing a wrong. So I think it's it's a very exciting time to be a filmmaker from the global south, but it's an equally challenging time because I think as we've seen across the world, there is a concerted effort to sort of like you know mm, um, how should I put it? Free speech and freedom of expression seem to be in, in, in greater distress now in, in democracies across the planet, whether that be starting right from, say, the Philippines, going to Turkey, or whether that be even Western European democracies are seeing the, right, the rise of the right. America, of course, four years under Trump. I mean, you know, so it, it, these are challenging times to be telling stories in, but I think because of these conversations that have been sparked. Uh, it is also a very exciting time to be a filmmaker in. Um, as far as our story is concerned, we've just sort of premiered in Jan. There are a bunch of conversations happening. Uh, we are hopeful that the film uh, would find larger release. I think this is a story that the world needs to witness. Uh, I think Mira shows us a new way of looking at our future. And I think anybody who feels that they have had it difficult in their lives should actually watch Writing With Fire to see the kind of, you know, political, social, cultural, economic sort of um, um, challenges that people like Meera Sunita face. And despite all of that, the kind of story that they're telling with their lives so, so we are hopeful that, you know, the film is going to go into many more festivals. It's, it, it already has had a robust festival run over the last four months, and it's going into a strong festival run again over summer. Uh, we are also doing a lot of closed door screenings with uh, students in, in high schools. Uh, we are also doing screenings with uh, journalists associations, um, the pandemic essentially has sort of halted our impact and education run, but we are hoping that in 2022, early 2022, we'd be able to sort of travel with the film through the US and, and, and some countries in Europe with Mira and Sunita, where they essentially represent their work through the film, talk about what they're doing, and in a sense, to be able to use the film as an amplifier to build partnerships with the work that Khabar Lehria is doing in India because I think it's these partnerships that form of a protective mechanism, um, an invisible sort of like sh sort of shield uh, for the journalists, which would allow them to continue to operate despite the times that we are living in. So we are hopeful that the film will find release. Um, incidentally, like in, in, in news that was breaking earlier this year, all the major OTPs uh, that operate uh, you know, Amazon, Netflix, they've all signed, uh, loosely put, I would put it, a self-censorship agreement with the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting, where they have agreed to themselves censure content that would be, uh, what's the term? Religion? Uh, the, Sensitive. That would be, you know, that would hurt religious sentiments or, you know, would, would be against Indian ethos and culture, whatever that means. Uh, so, so, you know, in, in, in that sense, uh, you know, it is difficult to be making political documentaries, but I do know of a few that are in the pipeline, very exciting ones, that I, and I know the filmmakers, and I know that those films are coming out, if not this year, next year. So, you know, it, it's the work of an artist to constantly challenge the system, and, and that's going to happen, you know, and, and it, it, it is an exciting time to be in, so yeah. 
Thank you so much. Uh, so I have a couple of questions before we end. One is about the you know sequences that you shot in the police station. Anyone who is familiar with the Indian scenario knows that the moment you bring a camera in, uh, you are refused uh, the permission to shoot. So it's curious to know how you managed to get the permission to shoot inside the police station. That too, you know, their response as to why action was not taken against the rape accused. I think we that is that part of filming. We just didn't apply any strategy. Mm. It was like if she's going to the police station, we're going to the police station. It, it was just like that um, because it's critical for their way of reporting to report uh, to take the survivor victims uh, uh, part of you know their. Uh, narrative and then go to the other side and then get the administration. So we we knew that a police station is definitely in the making and uh, in the initial parts, like Sunita especially is friends with a lot of uh, 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 people in the police force. Um, she's a great um, uh, and smart strategist like that. You know, she, that's how that's how she gets uh, her way around things. And and there's a very invisible protective mechanism there. But a lot of other police stations are just like very unwelcoming. But like I said, we just like went in and we stumped them. Yeah, we just saw and and if there were times when you know someone got like irritated or uh, aggressive, then one of us would like sort of like assuage. talk to assuage them, engage them in a conversation while the filming is happening. So you you just get make sure your job is done uh, and and quickly pull out. I, I mean, one of the things we also learned on this project was the art of negotiating with people who don't necessarily agree with you, because that's exactly what we saw the journalists doing constantly in all of these hostile spaces. They would never get angry or irritated. It was always about how do I get my job done? So... You know, those were some of the learnings as sort of filmmakers for us as well. Like, how do you continue telling your story without... Because at the end of the day, the cop who is coming to sort of like, you know, ask you to stop filming is the son of a farmer who's also in sort of like a Satyam-like situation, you know, unable to sort of make choices and is stuck in a system that he or she may not necessarily agree with, but it's their job. And we found that more often than not, it's just having these informal conversations with them just gave us more access. And I wouldn't be so kind to all of them, but maybe <laughs> yes, some of them. <laughs> yeah. um, it's also like thinking about a sequence where Sunita is mansplained by some male journalists after meeting with the police inspector, where they essentially tell her that she needs to actually butter those in authority while she actively resists that kind of advice. So can you tell a little bit uh, about how Kabul areas work in this sex with other news gathering groups in the locality and how their status as an all women group is received by these other media outlets? Because there is a tight competition when it comes to local uh, news gathering uh, agencies out there and mostly it's men. So we see a sequence where, you know, this conversation happens, but I was also curious to know the kind of camaraderie or the kind of competition that might exist and how that have impacted the way in which these women are negotiating. Like you said, they are all strategists. They know exactly what would work with a few people and have to negotiate their kind of pitch accordingly. So if you have any thoughts from your experience working with them. I think your question has all the answers. That's exactly how uh, <laughs> how they function. It's it's strategy and it's really uh, understanding uh, the situation, reading it quite well, um, and and molding uh, yourself accordingly. And at some points, uh, where it's aggressive, you know, they they switch their body language. It's it's dealt with in in that way. Where it's mansplaining, which happens so so many times. Uh, you know, it's just because these are also colleagues. These are also people you meet maybe two times, like in three days. So it's 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 a begrudging respect, I guess, the men have. Um, the kinds that people who are susceptible to corruption have towards people who can't um, uh, be uh, uh, be be touched by corruption. You know, you you know that there's something right there, and you can't ignore it. Uh, uh, yet you can't really absolutely cheer on. So it's we've seen all kinds of responses, and it's more largely in that in the two categories of either people have there there are friendships and they they share their tips uh, tip offs with each other and sources with each other, and there are other cases where it's just like you know they 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 would push because being a reporter is also a very physical job. 
right it's it requires you to wade crowds to be there to get your shot it's like the physicality of it uh, and most of them are short uh, you know men have an advantage of having their own private vehicles so they reach faster uh, a policeman is much more comfortable giving a male journalist like a, a quick bite with they'll make uh, our reporter wait so it's because of like maybe 20 years of being on the ground and have deep roots they figured um a kind of language and body language to to negotiate everything i think i there was this you know this reminds me of this one scene again that is not in the film which actually answers your question so basically sunita goes on to start her own show and <clears throat> in this scene what happens is that uh, you have five male journalists sitting in this tea shop and sunita's over there and she and and all the men are huddled huddled around this one mobile phone and so from sunita's studio shot we cut to like you know the shot of her on the phone and where they're watching you know her uh, crime show and they're all absorbed like pin drop silence and then as the show ends they go oh this is really good sunita like and then like yeah you also getting a lot of hits and someone goes you know the other day someone was talking about this and you getting a lot of comments this is doing really well they praise her and then eventually one of them goes yeah but you know maybe you should have used some sound effects to make it more sort of like you know those crime shows that you see on mainstream tv yeah so that it's more dramatic and sunita sort of indulged them in her own special way sipping tea saying really what else and and they just like so you know it's is this constantly there but yeah i mean they found their allies within the system as well so it's complex but you know it's to see that they're used to navigating yeah right thank you so much so one last question before we wrap up uh, this is regarding the controversial kind of you know aspects that especially when you're working with a community you also need to work in collaboration with what they are comfortable because they are at the firing line when you know none of us are really out there the kind of situations they have to negotiate on a day to day basis so i was just wondering about uh, the mining mafia and other kind of uh, you know establishment against whom they have to push against in their reporting so uh, we do not get to see um, any of that in the documentary and i know that there is also certain reasons why you do not want to put any of those things there i'm thinking about you know the dedication of the the film in memory of riswana tabassum like the the film ends with it so i was wondering about the kind of challenges that these journalists face in terms of reporting certain issues that are um against the establishment and the threats and other kind of uh, reasons why they would want to also you know put out there the problems of visibility because visibility is both good and bad sometimes visibility draw a lot of attention in terms of who you are what your politics is but it can also be the other way around in terms of you know being like visible out there against the establishment so in your own strategies talking with um, khabar lehri about what they are comfortable with uh, what were the strategies you use because this is so important when you're talking about a, a documentary which is also about the larger political climate in india so if you have any thoughts on that that's a great question i think it's a question that they are constantly battling with like how visible do we make ourselves versus should we continue working at a grassroots level right um um if you look at so i mean one of our favorite sort of like pieces that continues to come up on the khabar lehria sort of universe of stories is the kavita show uh, which you see the seeds of beginning that that's where it germinated in the film but the kavita show right now is i would say uh an opinion piece by kavita that talks about really really difficult things right and it takes a certain amount of gumption and courage to actually call the system out for its failures and kavita being kavita no holds barred goes for the jugular versus you know their their sort of like everyday news reporting is much more nuanced and sophisticated where it is not essentially mainstream in india mainstream journalism or mainstream tv journalism in india is basically a circus and led by the likes of arnab goswami like you know let's just put it on the record there uh and when you look at women like um Mira and Sunita and and eventually Shamkali in the film as well they are working with 
what you would say is outdated sort of like technology where, you know, it's small mobile phones and very basic lapel mics uh, and 2G or 3G connections, sometimes no electricity. But what they bring to the field is this very, very sophisticated and nuanced style of journalism, whether that be investigative, whether that be political, whether that be cultural, uh, which, which essentially shows the way, so to speak, because in that region, uh, most of the news that has been consumed by, uh, or, 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 or the consumers of Kabul area news would typically be your rural belts of India, Hindi speaking, uh, demographically, the age would be between 18 and 35. That's what they've told us, predominantly male, uh, uh, you know? So when you have men watching news pieces, about menstrual health, you know, and that's something that they decided to do. We're going to do pieces about menstrual health. We're going to talk about, you know, the female body. We're going to talk about uh, extramarital relationships. We're going to talk about premarital sex. You know, it's just path-breaking stuff. And I think that is challenging the system in more ways than one. While their existence itself is a challenge to like, you know, the powers that be, the fact that every day these conversations are not just about the politics of the land, but they're also about the cultures that imprison us and how do we sort of break away from it. And again, like for us, like city dwellers, like privileged folks who continue to sort of like have these social media outbursts and rage, which is just contained to Twitter or Facebook, uh, or, you know, in our living rooms with our friends over drinks, but like, you know, these women are out there fighting the long run, fighting in the long run, these battles that take time. And, it, and, and this is Mira's philosophy. It takes time to change the system, but it is possible to challenge it and it is possible to change it without dropping a single drop of blood. And I think that Shamkali's growth in the film is emblematic of Mira's way of being. She will never give up. And for me, essentially, as a filmmaker, Meera is talismatic with what Khabar is. And that is why she represents to me what hope there is in the world, where you don't give up on even the last soldier in the battlefield, because you know that they are going to fight a good fight with you if you have them covered. And for me, she is what a truly exceptional leader is. So the times might be difficult. It is getting more and more restrictive to be a journalist in. Uh, but I do know that Kavalheria will always find a way to get the story out. And they will do it in the smartest, most strategic way uh, possible. And, you know, uh, that's, yeah, it, it is. It, it, and they've weaponized courage and compassion. That is what makes them so special. I don't know if you want to add something. No, just like to just add one very relevant point um, uh, you, you asked about our own process, because when you have this whole canvas, what uh, there's a great deal of risk to a lot of uh, work that they're doing. And we're extremely mindful of that uh, while filming and while editing, um, you know, mm -hmm. so we've only chosen what serves the story. There's a lot, I mean, five years of filming, there's a lot more. There are many, many stories and layers that could be built. But um, this is a story of it. That's a product of its times. Uh, uh, and, and so we've been very, very careful about what has what has gone in and what meaning it's actually created. Uh, there could be another film out of the stuff that came out uh, maybe for another time. And these were very honest and frank conversations that we had with Kabbaleria right at the beginning. Um, and, and there was absolute freedom, uh, uh, which they absolutely deserved where we said, if there's anything that's uncomfortable, meetings, strategy meetings or a case that they're going to report on that you don't want us around or you don't want the cameras, it's absolutely fine. So that kind of a, a very tacit understanding of each other's process really helped us uh, to land at an edit where we didn't actually take a lot of things out. We actually didn't. We just found a way to say things in, in subtle and not so subtle ways, but very aware of the uh, risks that it can, you know, a newsroom is, is a newsroom. There's a, there are many battles fought there. You don't want the whole world to know, uh, maybe 90% of them. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Rindu and Shishmi, for sharing with us uh, details about the film and your, you know, the excellent way in which you have captured for us uh, the journey of Kabbalaria. So good luck with your project and hoping that this film will uh, reach a more audience and will be able to make the kind of impact and more power to Kabbalaria. Thank you so much. Thank you, Darshana. Absolute pleasure. What great questions. Yeah. What what deep and insightful questions. I don't remember having so much fun in a QA in a while. And talking. Yeah, yeah. But you know, honestly speaking, like typically what happens is in festival QAs, you have 10 minutes yeah. to wrap everything up. And typically, of course, you understand the questions are how did you find out about this story? And you know, what are the journalists doing now? And by the time you finish, it's over. So like yeah. this is I, I find this interesting because it allows you to sort of actually go back into, you know, five years of uh, doing this and just think deeper about all of this. And also uh, so refreshing of festivals like Wisconsin and Seattle before this, where they actually got South Asians, mm -hmm. Indian women uh, uh, who are uh, in the field, who understand uh, the context, the politics, and then therefore it becomes a more informed sort of like a conversation, right? Otherwise, you start off, which is also important, you start off with defining what a caste system is, etc. <laughs> it's, it's a different kind of a conversation. Yeah.